That brings us to chapter 7. Remember, we're in episodic narrative right now. So none of these chapters are like flowing from the next to the next to the next to the next. So we have no sense of time of what is between chapter 6 and chapter 7. We have no idea where we are in David's reign right now. We know that we're before David and Bathsheba, but we don't know where we are in that reign before that. But the narrator has intentionally put this episode right after this one because God's going to come in and make a covenant with David, and the previous episode explains why God is willing to make that covenant. Just like Abraham believed, and God credited to him righteousness and made a covenant with him. And Moses was faithful to God, and he was the faithful servant in all of God's house, and God made a covenant with him. So now we see that David is correctable. And David gets what it really means to be a king of God. doesn't mean he'll always act like that, but that story explains why God's willing to make a covenant with him. I know it's been a long time since we talked about the last covenant, but remember there are seven covenants total in the entire Bible. The first one was the Adamic covenant back in Genesis 1 and 2. The second was the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9. The third was the Abrahamic covenant, in chapters 15, 17, and 22 of Genesis. And then there was the Mosaic Covenant in chapters 19 and 20 of the book of Exodus. The sixth covenant was the Restoration Covenant. That's the one that's easy to forget. That was in chapter 29 and 30 of Deuteronomy. And this brings us to the sixth covenant, the Davidic Covenant. This is the last covenant in the First Testament. There's only one more covenant, and that is the New Covenant with Jesus. It's the new covenant that Christ is going to make in the upper room. So this is going to be the last of the covenants of the first testament. Chapter 7 verse 1. The king settled in his palace for Yahweh gave him relief from all of his enemies on all sides. Notice how many times saying God did this for him. God did this for him. The king said to Nathan the prophet, look I am living in a palace made of cedar while the ark of God sits in the middle of a tent. And Nathan replied to the king, You should go and do whatever you have in mind, for Yahweh is with you. David wants to do what? He wants to build a temple for God. Why does he want to build a temple for Yahweh? God is in this teeny little tent. It's like 15 by 45 feet big. And he's in this giant palace. It's not right that I'm in cedar and stone and God's in a tent. And Nathan the prophet responds. Now, is that a good desire, good motivation? Sounds like it, but in the same way too, it's, does he really get the purpose of the tabernacle? And Nathan even falls into this. The, the prophet of God who's on the divine counsel of Yahweh says, do it. Later God's going to come in and say, no, 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 no. And this is where you're beginning to see that, remember, even prophets can make mistakes. Moses made a serious mistake, and he was kicked out of the land for it. And Nathan is now making a mistake. And when we get to the book of Kings, the prophets making mistakes are going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more and more. But Nathan is not going to be judged like Moses did because he's not directly disobeying God. And when God comes to him and reveals that to him, he immediately goes back to David and tells him what he should do. In that sense, there's no sin here on Nathan's part. Verse 4, that night Yahweh told Nathan, go tell my servant David, this is what Yahweh says, do you really intend to build me a house for me to live in? 
I have not lived in a house from the time that I brought the Israelites up from Egypt to the present day. Instead, I was traveling with them, living in a tent. Wherever I moved among all the Israelites, I did I ever say to any of the leaders whom I appointed to care for, My people Israel, why have you not built for me a house made of cedar? God's answer is no. And he makes it very, very clear. I don't want a temple. If I wanted a temple, I would have asked for it. In all the years, I've never asked for it. In fact, when I asked for a house, I'm the one that gave you the blueprints for a tent. No, 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 no. Now that's important to understand. Because Solomon's going to build a temple. And what is God's answer? God said no. He also makes the point, when I'm in the tent, I'm traveling through all of Israel. Remember, one of the things, yes, there were other countries who had tabernacle-like layouts. A lot of non-believers have pointed that and said, look, your, your religion's pagan just like them. They had the same kind of layout. Yeah, but a big, big, big difference was that whole Shekinah glory of God coming into it that no other tent ever had. But the other big difference, and this is the main point, is that every other temple is some big temple way out away from all the people or way up on a mountain that only the priests or the elite can get to and only the worthy, if they prove themselves, can get to. But God literally put himself in a tent, in the dirt, in the midst of all the people. And he moved around with them. And even all throughout here, one of, the hard, one of the problems of trying to figure out where the tabernacle is half the time in the book of Judges and Joshua and, and Samuel is because it's constantly moving around. One of the things that God is trying to communicate in the ancient world where people thought all the time that the gods lived in this region. But my God does not live in that region. And the gods live in this house, but they don't live in that house. One of the things that the tabernacle is going to do is, one, it's going to allow him to move among all the people. That no one person has the privilege to walk less, fewer miles than any other person in the nation. And it will move around and go to all the people, and all the people can have access to God as much as possible. They would have had more access if they hadn't worshipped the golden calf, and the Levites weren't to be the only priests. But the other thing he's trying to do is destroy this idea that God is only in one place. And that's a very hard mentality to go against when everybody in the world thinks that way. It's like fighting materialism in the church. When the whole world is programmed wired that way, it's hard to fight in your own family, in your own church, in your own life. And you've got to do everything you can, and so that's why he has it this way. And that's why he makes the point, I have, I'm able to move everywhere. I'm a God of the people. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of people and relationships. No other God had that title. Gods were gods of nature, not people. And God is trying to communicate that. And he says, I don't want a house of cedar, period. That defeats the theological purpose of having a house. So now say this, verse 8, to my servant David, this is what Yahweh of hosts says, I took you from the pasture, from your work as shepherd, to make your leader of my people, Israel. I was with you wherever you went, and I defeated all your enemies before you. Now I will make you as famous as the great men of the earth. I will establish a place for my people, Israel, and settle them there. They will live there and not be disturbed anymore. Violent men will not oppress them again. 
as they did in the beginning, and during the time when I appointed judges to lead my people Israel. Instead, I will give you relief from all your enemies. Yahweh declares to you that he himself will build a dynastic house for you. When the time comes for you to die, I will raise up your descendants, one of your own sons, to succeed you, and I will establish his kingdom. Notice the I, 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 I. And what God is making it very clear is, David, you don't make me great. I make you great. No human can make me great. No human can do anything for me. I will make you great. I will build you. I will give you victory. I will build your kingdom. You don't make God great. God makes you great. And by making you great in a way that you never could have ever been on your own, it gives him glory. But it's all through his works and efforts, not through your amazing talents and skills. And that's the message to me. If you build me a temple, no one will see this as Yahweh's temple. They'll see it as? But we know that because everybody all throughout history now calls it Solomon's temple. God does not want it. This word house is the main focus in this passage. David says, I want to build you a house. And what he's thinking is physical temple, physical building. God comes in and says, no, I don't want a house. I didn't ask for a house. I will build you a house. And he goes on, describes that house, and that house is a what? A line, descendants, a dynasty, a household. God changes the definition of house. He says, I will continue your dynasty. I will create for you a dynasty. I will raise up a son from you. And your son, I will build a kingdom for him. That's a different kind of a house. The kingdom is not a literal physical building. God has completely left behind the idea of a physical building. He's gone totally into the metaphorical idea of people and family and households. And what God is saying to David right now is, he's going to do something with David that he never did with Saul. I'm going to raise up a son for you. Now for David, that would be revolutionary. Because remember, Saul is the first king ever. It has never, ever, ever, ever in the history of Israel, leaders been the sons of a previous leader. Moses was not leader because his dad was before him. Abraham, none of those guys. Even the one guy who ended up becoming a leader because his dad was, was Abimelech after Gideon, and that was not good. And Ishbosheth became leader after his dad Saul was, and that was not good. And what God is making clear is, I'm going to do something that I've never done before. I'm going to lift a son to be a leader after you from your line. Not just some other person I'm going to appoint. But I'm going to build your line. I'm going to build your house. And remember, God doesn't want dynasties until he says he wants them. <laughs> the difference is that he's anointing this dynasty. When Abimelech, after Gideon appointed himself king, he was not anointed by God. But God is going to anoint David's dynasty. He changes the definition of house, and it's really important to understand as he goes in this next thing. When the time comes for you, verse 12, for you to die, I will raise up for you a descendant, one of your own sons to succeed you. That is immediately who? Solomon. Now, it's going to be a long time before Jesus. <laughs> the, the direct thing is Solomon. I'm going to lift up your son to succeed you. Now, we don't know it's Solomon yet, but that will come later. 
and I will establish his kingdom. And he will build a house for my name, and I will make my, his dynasty permanent. What is house there? People. God changed the definition of house. I don't want a house. You don't build me a physical house. But I will build you a house, a line, a dynasty, a kingdom, children. And when your children come along, they will build my house. And then he emphasizes it by saying dynasty and kingdom. Because all throughout the Bible, the people of God have always been his house. Even when you get to the author of Hebrews, he's going to say that Moses was a faithful servant in all of God's house. And the whole context of Hebrews is the people's house. When you get to 1 Peter, in chapter 2, Peter's going to say that Jesus is the cornerstone and we are all living stones being built into him. We are the temple. Jesus is going to come along and says, tear down this temple in three days or rebuild it. They did not know he was talking about his body. That's the house. Because eventually Jesus will come from Solomon and he will be the house. He will be the temple. In fact, in first in John, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was with God and was God. And then it goes on in chapter 14, it says, and the word of God tabernacled among us. That word tabernacle is dwelt. Your Bible is translated dwelt, but it's actually tabernacle. The whole point is that the house was never meant to be physical. The house was people. Because God is a God of people. He's not a God of stones and buildings and bricks. And, and, and Peter and Paul calls us the family of God, the body of Christ. We are the dwelling place of God, Ephesians chapter 2. The Holy Spirit dwells in us as the house of God. And when you get to Ezekiel, Ezekiel is going to envision a brand new temple one day. And that temple is so unrealistically impossible to ever create. It has to be metaphorical. And then when you get to the Gospels, Jesus makes it very, the Gospel writers make it clear that that temple in Ezekiel is Jesus. The way that the temple is described in Ezekiel and the way that Jesus is described match up completely. It's a total metaphor. God did not want a temple. I've got a lot more arguments for that, but you're going to have to hit the pause button until we get to Kings. <laughs> because when we get to Kings chapter 6, 7, and 8, it's going to become even more clear that that temple is not godly. That temple is not godly in any kind of way. But here's the thing. David's going to interpret it for his own convenience to, oh, he said my son will build a house. You were not paying attention in class, David. <laughs> We changed the definition on you. And what's interesting is, this shows you too that this is mostly about man. Because when we get to Chronicles, David finds a loophole. He designs the blueprints for the temple. He gathers all the supplies for the temple. He hires all the workers for the temple. He gets everything in place so that when his son Solomon comes along, he just says, just give the command. Technically, Solomon didn't even really build it. It's not his blueprints. He did not get all the materials together. And we know that Solomon did not lay one single stone in that thing. It is really David's temple. And when you get to Chronicles and you realize that, you realize that's even more messed up. Because David kind of got around God's little command by just saying, well, I'll just gather everything together. 
and I'll just give Solomon the command, but he'll just like connect all the dots for me. Now, I'm not technically building the house, but you are, David. And then when they build it, it becomes a glorious testament to man's capabilities. And how many people come around the world, think about the cathedrals, right? Spain, England, and France. They're in this competition. Who can build the biggest cathedral for the glory of God, of course. And they're building a cathedral and outdoing the other country and outdoing the other country, back and forth, all for the glory of God. And how many people around the world today go into those cathedrals and think, wow, Yahweh is awesome. They think, wow, it's amazing what man is able to do. Big churches in the U.S. How many people walk into these big churches, and I'm not going to, I'm not knocking them, but I'm just saying, if you think you're building a big, big church for the glory of God, how many people walk off the streets and walk in and think, Yahweh is awesome? They think, wow, this is an amazing architect. Look, who designed this? Who put this together? Now, I'm not saying your churches can't look nice or can't be big if you have a big congregation. I'm not saying that, but I've heard churches talk like, we'll give God glory by building this thing bigger and bigger. That's not the way it works, and nobody thinks that way. Nobody thinks that way. And here's the other thing. The temple is going to be fashioned with human tools. God made it very clear in the book of Exodus that not one tool was allowed to touch any monument or any altar that anybody built so that man would not put his creativity into it and then think, wow, amazing thing that I built. And other people look at it and think, amazing thing you built. It was supposed to be just stones gathered around and stacked up, totally the way that God created them. And we'll go through a lot more examples of why the temple is not good when we get to Kings, but those are a few things that just show that this, this, is, not a, this is man's flesh. Especially when you look at this and God says, no. If I wanted, I would have commanded it. That's the other thing. Who gave all the instructions for the tabernacle? Every little detail. From chapter 25 all the way through 31. For a lot of you feel like it's a really boring read because it's so detailed and minute. God didn't give one instruction for how to build a temple. David did all the blueprints. And it actually looks more like a Phoenician temple than it does anything biblical. The temple is not from God. It is not all from God. And the last thing I'm going to make the point on is this. If you read through the, all the books up to this point, the tabernacle never gets attacked, never gets destroyed, never gets robbed or ransacked by enemies. You go, the minute that Solomon dies, that temple gets attacked, destroyed, robbed over and over and over and over again until God finally destroys the temple. And then when they rebuild it, he destroys it again. He doesn't want it. He did not want the temple. Which might threaten your theology that the temple being rebuilt is a sign of the second coming of Jesus. It's not. Then God goes on. 